running round. A winter was so hot and cold, froze ten feet beneath the ground. Don't murder me, I beg of you, don't murder me. Please don't murder me. I sat down to my supper, was a bottle of red whiskey. Said my prayers and went to bed. That's the last they saw of me. Don't murder me. I beg of you, don't murder me. Please don't murder me. When I so I'm your host, Stella, and this is Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, Episode 9. Wham Bam Thank You Ma'am Special for July MMX. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon. Librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it. Crime doesn't pay, girls. Brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 paperbacks. Unfortunately, neither of the vintage comics that I reviewed this episode are in stock at Mile High Comics, so I have no examples to give you. But if you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Again, examples of the prices you may encounter are September's Batgirl number 14 and Birds of Prey number 5, both for $2.69. So, if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Episode 9 is dedicated to my dear friend, Renee Rhodes, who was sadly taken from her friends and family far too soon. Well, this is called the Wham Bam Thank You Ma'am Special because basically like it sounds, I'm going to get into the dirty work, a.k.a. the reviews, and get out right away. Uh, the reason why I'm doing this, as many of you are aware, I'm interviewing uh, Mr. Brian Q. Miller this Saturday, actually, and um, he, he wanted to go over 
or he gave me the idea, you know, to go over and talk uh, about the, the current Batgirl, number 12. And so since I had not gone over number 11, I thought, oh, that might be a little iffy. So I decided, because that'd be awesome to, you know, discuss an issue with the actual creator of the issue, that I should just come out with um, a review-only podcast right before. So I'm going to do the vintage and then, of course, uh, the two new ones so that you'll still get my feedback on number 11 before I do number 12 with um, Miller. Um, for that reason, I don't really have any questions. There was one question from Steve J. Rogers that I left out from the last uh, episode because it, it involved an issue that I had not read yet. So I will do that one. And then uh, I guess a concern was brought to my attention. And so I don't know if I had ever gone over it, so I thought I would go over that. So first of all, Steve J. Rogers asks, I was reading Batman number 700, and it seems Grant Morrison is playing with the idea that Barbara will eventually line up with her DCAU counterpart and become the top cop in Gotham City. What do you think? Do you see Babs going legit and follow her father's footsteps? Or is this just the usual Grant Morrison wackiness? Uh, he then went on to uh, talk about Batman Beyond and, and whether I agree with that. And I did sort of touch upon that in the previous episode, so I won't go over that again. I do think that Barbara... I think that that could happen, certainly. Um, I mean, it's a cop family. And, I mean, once her father goes, I think that she could probably go legit. In 700, however, obviously she did not like Damien and what he was doing. Perhaps he might have been using lethal force. It seemed like his kind of thing, so that might have been why she didn't agree with it. Um, but if she, he is not the only one that she does not um, give her trust to, then probably something had to have happened in the superhero community, which is, I think, the only reason why she would stop being Oracle, uh, some sort of catalyst, something bad. Um, so I think that's the only way that that's going to happen. Um, I don't think it's going to be a, 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 a nice and easy change from Oracle to a commissioner. Um, it was kind of weird to see her still in a wheel wheelchair, um, but I guess... Yeah, the Batman Beyond just sort of skipped that anyways. Uh, I feel like she wouldn't still be in a wheelchair in the future. I think that she'd probably have some sort of, um, I don't know, bionic legs or something. I've actually been watching Wolverine and the X-Men and kind of like uh, Professor Xavier, for those of you who, who have been watching it. You know, he has those, I guess, um, I don't know, they sort of clip onto his knees and he's able to walk. And I feel like she would have that because... Especially in just those two panels that she's in, it seems sort of a hindrance to uh, be after some crazies in a wheelchair. The only thing that was confusing me, I guess, was trying to figure out the timeline. When would Batman be on? When would Terry McGinnis be Batman? And when would Damian Wayne be Batman? So I was a little, little confused about that because essentially that could be going on at the same time. So if any of you can explain that to me, that'd be great. Um... I mean, they have both of those in that issue. Uh, tomorrow was Damien, and then and Tomorrow was um, Terry. Oh, and then that baby. That was so weird. Um, but this isn't obviously going over um, Batman. But it's kind of odd to think about the timeline. Um, but I'm sorry. I guess I'm going off on a way tangent. So, yes, I do think that she could indeed become the top cop. But 
I think essentially she'd have to go through all, all the channels that normal cops would have to. She couldn't just start off as a commissioner. So I'm just wondering when that would happen um, and how that would happen since she is in a wheelchair. And it, it, it seems unlikely that while there were all these um, obstacles before her in Bad Girl Year One when she had legs, what's going to happen now and how would she go through all those tests and everything? So that would be interesting to see. Does it make sense that that could happen and she would follow in her father's footsteps? Yes. Is it likely? I don't know. Um, it seems not the more I think about it, actually. But it'd be, it'd be an interesting way to go. And like I said, I think that there has something has to happen, I think, to separate her from the, the superhero community. Um, and like the Commissioner Gordon in Batman Beyond, she was in general, I think, against superheroes. So... Some catalyst, and I think I just keep saying this, that I think Dinah Lance would have to die. I just think that would be the one catalyst to make her stop being Oracle. So there, there's that question. Hopefully I didn't ramble too much. Kind of went all over the place, it seems, but hopefully there's some some line of, uh, of thought in, the, in that answer. Uh, the other thing that was sort of brought to my attention, someone commented on my website after episode 8, um that he enjoyed the um, the podcast, but um, he, he wishes, I guess, that I didn't review them so late um, because he wanted to hear what I had to say on Birds of Prey number two. So I don't know if I ever addressed this, but I actually, because I get my comics via an online service, I actually get my comics clumped together and I get them... They, they get sent out the very last Wednesday of the month, so I usually get them the, the first week of the next month. So that's why I actually do everything later instead of, you know, Batgirl comes out and then I do it right after. So it's not because of laziness or anything. It's just sort of how the uh, cookie crumbles for me. So I apologize for, for being later, but at least um, Zayas's reviews come out on time right afterwards, so at least you can read those and I do recommend them because they're they're very well done and then you know you can listen to these and see if my opinion differs or is similar to his so at least you're not uh, completely without any reviews but that is the reason why I sort of wait until the end of the month to when I have both comics in my hand okay so since we're talking about comics already let's just jump into the reviews First up, we have Detective Comics number 396, The Orchid Crusher, came out in February of 1970. Writer Frank Robbins, penciler Gil Kane, and inker, excuse me, Murphy Anderson. Also appearing in this issue are The Brain Pickers and The Master of Mind Over Matter. Quote, Only such delicate tints can do justice to your glorious coloring, my dear. A series of murders involving plain Jane redheads are being committed by a serial killer known as the Orchid Killer. One day, while going through books at her library, Barbara Gordon stumbles upon a computer card belonging to the latest victim being used as a bookmark. Finding the book was checked out by Darren Tompkins, and the computer card is from a dating service, she tries to track down Tompkins, who suddenly moved out of his apartment. The dating service keeps the privacy of all of its members, so Barbara, as Batgirl, is unable to get information on the killer that way. 
Deciding that the best way to catch the killer is to present herself as a helpless victim, she sets up an account for Barbara Gordon and at the dating service and makes herself fit the physical descriptions of the victims. Babs blows off a date with Jason Bard in order to follow through with her plan. Later, on a date with a man named Max Turnov, when he pins an orchid on her and asks for a goodnight kiss, she refuses and believes him to be the killer. At this refusal, Max freaks out, saying that she doesn't deserve the orchid, and storms off. Barbara changes into her Batgirl getup and follows him, but she loses his trail, and just when she's about to get to the address on the dating info card, hands reach out from the dark alley behind her and grab her mouth. This story is then continued in Detective Comics number 397, The Hollow Man, which came out in March 1970. Writer, once again, Frank Robbins, penciler Gil Kane, and inker Murphy Anderson. Also appearing in this issue is Paint a Picture of Peril. Nice little um, alliteration there. Quote, Since my curly-headed boyhood, women have fawned on me. Isn't he pretty? Isn't he a living doll? None saw the inner me. Continuing from the last issue, At first she believes her attacker is Max until she sees that the person's face is that of a handsome man. This attacker knocks her out and later Batgirl is tapped awake by Max who explains that he arrived and scared off her attacker. With this data bust, she sets up a new one again as Barbara Gordon. Her second date is with a man named John Millman who also freaks out after another refusal and attacks her but is stopped by the timely arrival and Kane of Jason Bard. Bard's bad knee fails him again. Yikes, I think it's time for a robotic leg. And Millman manages to get away. Tracking Millman to his home as Batgirl, she breaks in and attacks a man packing a suitcase, only to discover that it's the man who attacked her in the alley the night before. Gaining the upper hand, she easily defeats him and finds that he was both Max and Millman, disguising himself with masks. When she asks him why he committed the murders, he explains it was because women never saw his inner beauty, thus the quote above, only falling for his good looks, and he wanted to find the inner beauty in plain women, but only found ugliness. After listening to his reason, a disgusted Batgirl turns him over to the police. Now this story seemed to me like something straight out of a mystery novel, and I think that Bad's detective skills, if not her police or undercover cop know-how, really shine through. Once again, we see an antagonist with a penchant for changing appearances, and like the other couple switcheroo stories we've encountered, readers really get thrown for a loop. I certainly found the story suspenseful and was not really sure who the actual orchid killer was until Batgirl found out. I have to disagree with Batgirl's actions in deliberately putting herself in harm's way, but I guess she thought she'd be able to handle the killer once she found him. It reminded me of an episode of Law & Order SVU where Detective Olivia Benson went undercover in a jail to find a rapist guard and almost found herself raped. I was quite concerned for Batgirl, but I very much enjoyed Jason's little moments, especially his jealousy leading him to defend Barbara on her second date. Of course, like every sociopath, the Orchid Killer, or Hollow Man, has an interesting motive for his dates and subsequent killings. In wanting to find homely women's inner beauty, he only found ugliness, and this in turn led him to unleash his own inner ugliness. This story continues a trend that perhaps I have only recently become aware of. Instead of giving Batgirl supervillains or those sea listers who could really make up a rogues gallery, her stories 
have consistently involved street-level criminals, which forced Batgirl to use her intelligent with intelligence with a, a dash of her fighting skills. In this way, I think that the writers really give Batgirl more respectability, though at times make her stories less exciting than if she were to face off with someone like, say, Scarecrow. Something else I have never mentioned before is that I really appreciate in the the second part of these two-part arcs, um, there is sort of a brief recap of the previous issue, but it uses pictures and words rather than just the standard blurb that modern comics commonly use. So in essence, it's as if you are watching the previously on of a TV show. Give this 9 out of 10 bats. When we return... It's only you've only been listening for so little, and I'm giving you a break already. I will go over Batgirl number 11 and Birds of Prey number 2. Wow, I think I'm getting back to the 20-minute episodes that I started this whole podcast off with. How wonderful.
Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed a nice little break with Serenading by the Cranberries. Okay, first up, we have Batgirl number 11, Batgirl Rising, The Flood, Part 3. Writer, Brian Q. Miller. Pencilers, Lee Garbett and Pere Perez. Inkers, Walden Wong and Pere Perez. And colorist, Guy Major. Quote, Some jackass named Calculator just kidnapped Oracle and threw a Romero movie in my way to stop me. Oh, wait, who the hell is this? Wendy. Harris? Yes. That's what I was afraid of. Sorry I just called your dad a jackass. After the kidnapping and mummification of Oracle in the previous issue, Barbara wakes up in a perfect world with a half-naked Dick Grayson as a husband, legs at work, and a turkey in the oven. Like, a uh, literal turkey, not an off-the-wall style euphemism for being pregnant. Babs, like the readers, knows that something is off about the whole thing. As she's in this dreamlike world, Calculator plugs into his brain in order to sync with hers and find out her secrets right before killing her. Babs next finds herself in a library in some groovy clothing with Calculator right in front of her. A short fight ensues and Babs decides to even the playing field by leaping into Calculator's brain. I hope she brought some antibacterial wipes. While all this is going on in Babs' world, Stephanie finds herself surrounded by more techno-zombies and at a loss to where Calculator took Oracle. While Steph is fighting Catwoman, Huntress, and Mambat, Wendy Harris, still locked in Firewall, uses the comm links and talks to Batgirl. After your basic foot-in-the-mouth introduction, Wendy helps Batgirl locate Oracle, uses the ricochet to get to Stephanie's location, and commandeers a plane to fly Steph to a drop point. 40,000 feet, 9.8 meters per second squared, all in a day's work. Well, I was pretty flabbergasted at the first page, but how depressing is it that Dick and Babs fans, you know, can only be satisfied by scenes that are occurring in a, a dream, not reality. And of course, we always have to come back to Killing Joke. I'm not sure, however, if the guy at Babs' door in the beginning is the actual Joker or it's just Calculator appearing as Joker. Once again, Miller is really putting Stephanie to the test by throwing her up against big-name characters. These matchups not only show Stephanie's rise in the DCU, but also her naivete and need to continue to learn. It's not very smart to go up against Huntress in any situation. In this case, if she was deliberating between fight or flight, she definitely should have chosen flight. The use of Wendy here is pushing farther toward the idea that she could be the new handler for Batgirl. Here we see that she is competent enough, has resolve, and perhaps most importantly, has something in common with Stephanie, a whacked out dad. A common interest such as this seems pivotal in, a, in order to make this relationship work. There were some really smart little things going on that could either be contributed to the writer or the artist. First, uh, the Babs in the Library scene was great and really seems to channel some of the vintage comics, especially due to her apparel. Second, the fact that Batgirl braids her hair and wraps her cape around her neck just before her drop-in from the airplane was intelligent writing or drawing. I really always approve of comics taking realistic approaches, even though they are sort of placed in this fantastical world. I do not, however, agree with Stephanie saying, but for at sign, number sign, money sign, percent sign, sake. Perhaps this could be stemming from the fact that I don't swear, but I just don't see Stephanie saying what we all probably know is covered up by those symbols. 
I see her as a pretty clean young adult who may occasionally say something like jackass, which she does. Um, her chatter is sarcastic and playful, but this time it just seemed to not fit the character that we have become familiar with. I also never like to see those info boxes that tell you to what a certain character is referring. I realized what was going on in reference to Oracle the Cure, though I've never read it, but the Batgirl-Catwoman thing was completely out of left field for me, and then it tells me to basically read World's Finest. You know. Overall, I think that this issue is probably the weakest so far of the Flood arc, and I do not know if I can properly excuse me, uh, explain why. Perhaps it's because Oracle and Batgirl are separated and we're not seeing that chemistry, which seems to work so well. Perhaps because Wendy has taken such a large character leap. Or perhaps the issue just didn't make much forward motion in the story, but seemed to just take a baby step toward the conclusion. Hopefully part four will make up for this below par issue. Six out of ten bats. Next up... Birds of Prey number two, end run part two, The Rage of the White Canary. Writer Gil Simone, pencilers Ed Benes and Adriana Mello, inkers Ed Benes and Mariah Benes, and colorist Ney Rufino. Quote, a setup. That witch chumped us all like a first date gone wrong. After Black Canary and Huntress question whether they will even survive a scuffle with White Canary, they attack at the same time and find themselves thwarted with every move. Dinah feels that White Canary hates her like a moose hates Sarah Palin and tries to figure out whom it could be. Help arrives in the form of Hawk, Dove, and Lady Blackhawk, but even that doesn't work. The news and police arrive as Oracle and the rest of the team figure out that this is all a setup to pull the birds' reputation down. After resisting arrest, the still bleeding from an arrow to the neck penguin suggests going to his club, the Iceberg Lounge, for cover. Savant is dead, Creote shoots himself in front of a monitor connected to Oracle, Penguin likes tatas, and Barbara puts up her hair, goes back to her roots, and fights back the best way she knows how in this situation, through a computer. Now, the question that arises from this issue really is, who is the White Canary? And this is sort of, I feel like the m main question that this entire arc right now is, um, is circling, is dancing around. You know, it's obvious that Dinah does not recognize her fighting skills, so it has to be someone that she doesn't know. Correction, someone she has not fought. The hatred that Dinah sees in Egg White's eyes and feels in her hits means that Egg White, at the very least, knows Dinah. The mention of Sin in this issue pushes me farther to the hypothesis that Sin is in fact the White Canary. Dinah's voiceover is still strong, but borders on self-pity this time around. In using her as a mouthpiece, we get a deeper look into her feelings and opinions on the situation and the characters involved. We also see her reservations concerning the ethical dilemmas involved in fighting the police, and Huntress's clear approval. I think it was smart of Simone to hold off on bringing the other birds into the battle until after the two original field members got a piece of White Canary. Black Canary and Huntress work well together, and it was nice to see Huntress not try to overstep Canary's leadership role, but actually voluntarily yield to it. I must say that this whole plot seems so much bigger and much more difficult than any bird's mission I have encountered thus far. The bad guy is pulling anyone and everyone into the fray and is pulling down the bird's reputations, not to mention bringing their secret IDs out into the open. 
Once again, I find myself groaning at Hawk. I can see why Dinah doesn't, or didn't, I suppose, like him. He's as obnoxious as Guy Gardner, and we all know, or rather, some of us know, that Dinah hated him. He's not much of a team player, and I do not really see how he will last with the birds if that does not change. Unfortunately, I had some problems with the art this time around, and it's basically that, number one, Oracle looks weird with her hair up, and number two, I do not agree with Oracle having long, manicured fingernails. That single panel with her hands over her face just rubs me the wrong way. I can understand trying to make her look feminine, but in reality, there is no way that someone who is so invested in computers would get a mani. And yikes! How odd is it that Penguin is blatantly looking at Dove's chest and even comments on her quote-unquote bosom later on. Yikes. Like Batgirl, I didn't enjoy this issue quite as much as the previous one, but it is still a strong beginning to the series. 8 out of 10 birds. And now to my literature recommendation. If you guys can't tell, there's a lot of Jane Austen going on. I think I I might have mentioned that I, I basically decided this summer was going to be Jane Austen summer and to sort of read all of the books that uh, were on my, my reading list, so sort of slowly continuing on. So Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. It was published in 1811, and it was Austen's first published novel, um, which she wrote under the pseudonym A Lady. How general. Uh, the story revolves around Eleanor and Marianne, two daughters of Mr. Dashwood by his second wife. They have a younger sister, Margaret, and an older half-brother named John. When their father dies, the family estate passes to John, and the Dashwood women are left in reduced circumstances. The novel follows the Dashwood sisters to their new, new home, a cottage on a distant relative's property where they experience both romance and heartbreak. The contrast between the sisters' characters, Eleanor has an abundance of sense but a lack of sensibility and Marianne is the opposite, is eventually resolved as they each find love and lasting happiness. Through the events in the novel, Eleanor and Marianne find a balance between sense or pure logic and sensibility or pure emotion in life and love. It's a very good novel. I said um, concerning Pride and Prejudice, you know, if you were concerned about it being really heavy and that's why you didn't want to read it. And I said, you know, it wasn't as heavy as I thought it was. I thought it was actually kind of a light read. This is sort of a stark contrast. Um, perhaps it was because it it, became, it came, excuse me, before Pride and Prejudice, though it wasn't her first written. The first uh, novel that she wrote was actually Northanger Abbey. But there were times where um, it seemed rather difficult to get through a sentence because there were, you know, at least five dependent clauses after the subject, and then you, you came to the verb and you had to go back to the subject to figure out, you know, who or what was being described. I don't know if, you know, it was the times or just her writing sort of got better after this one, but yeah, it was a little heavier than Pride and Prejudice. I don't know if I liked it as much as uh, Pride and Prejudice. I actually have the BBC film of Sense and Sensibility, and which was one of the main reasons why I really wanted to read it, because I loved the film. There were some departures in the film, but um, overall I think that it stayed pretty true. I mean, if you liked Pride and Prejudice, you may or may not like this one, mainly because, number one, the writing is a little bit heavier, um, the language is slightly more tedious, and number two, it's less um, 
romantic, I think, than Pride and Prejudice. It is more about the relationship between the two sisters rather than, um, and I mean, obviously there are men involved, but it's really about their growth um, as women. So it's it's different. So um, depending on what you like in your novels or your reading, you may or may not like it. But I still, I still recommend it. So there you go. You know, this episode actually begins the year 1970 in Barbara Gordon's publication history. And I totally forgot to give my favorite and least favorite issues in the previous episode. So uh, I will do that right now. Um, my favorite issue in 1969 was most likely Adventure Comics number 381, the Supergirl Gang. Even though what Barbara is pretending to be somebody else and then comes in and maybe has one panel as Batgirl. But it was still uh, a fun issue um, and I thought well composed. My least favorite issue, and this was actually hard because 1969 in general um, was a very good year, I think, uh, for Barbara Gordon stories. But my least favorite, I think, was Detective Comics number 385, Die Small, Die Big. Um, Sort of one of those issues where you're questioning the point of it all, and Barbara Gordon was only in one panel, and she didn't even say anything. So not only did I wonder why it was in my showcase, but I also wondered in general whose point it was but um yeah that's sort of the one about you know mr cellophane man oh i think i reviewed that one right after my hard drive died i do recall that no wonder i didn't like it um but there you go 1970 hopefully you know it will be an even greater year than 1969 was for her history as always you can send any questions or comments to batgirl to oracle at gmail.com Please also sign the petition to get Batgirl Year One back into production. Once again, it's www.gopetition.com slash petitions slash Batgirl dash year dash one HTML. Now, because that is such a mouthful, and if you are looking for a link elsewhere on my homepage and you couldn't find it, you had to scroll down a lot, I've actually made an easy-to-find link on my homepage. Uh, it's on the right, on the taskbar. I think it's right under the, the, the Yvonne Craig Donate button. So all you've got to do is click that and go straight to it. Um, actually, I just thought of something. Um, I think... On the DC message boards, uh, Bertoni sort of pointed me to that. There were some people discussing this. Actually, there were. It was very strange to see one person just flat out say, "I'm not signing this. I don't care." Um, another person voiced his or her concern about giving their email address. I'm not using any of those things for nefarious purposes. I'm not getting your email address from that. I don't even know how, if that's possible. I actually only see your name if I click. I only see the same thing, basically, that you do if you click um, signees. So if you're worried about privacy, I think that's the, the email address is just to verify that you are not some robot that's signing things. And I think it'd also be good, you know, to make it legitimate so that, you know, the people to whom I send these letters, they don't think that I've made up 600 and so names of fake people. So I'm not using it, so you can feel um, safe, I guess. Uh, I don't know if you just trust me because I'm just this this sort of bodiless voice over the internet, but I swear I've not even seen any addresses. I've only seen names when I go on there, and, and you know, some people put anonymous and everything, and that's completely fine, so... I thank you. I think we're on, I think the last time I checked, like 609. So once again, you know, I cannot thank you enough for all your support. 
I'm hoping, you know, I've yet to hear back from Warner Home Video, you know, none of those people. So who knows if I have to send it again to other people. So we shall see. Recently, I was actually interviewed by Dustin. I was going to say leader. I don't know. Um, sort of the, the main man, the boss man on the Batman net on his podcast. So um, I'm very appreciative for all the support that he and a lot of the people on there have given me. So I'm hoping that this really pulls through this, you know, community, obviously, of not only Babs lovers, but Batgirl lovers, um, you know, all this that we've gone through. I hope that it it yields something. So also uh, be sure to send in your questions for Brian Q. Miller. You have until this Friday, the 16th of July, 2010. I will be interviewing him on Saturday, the 17th. So I'm very excited about that, hopefully. It goes off without a hitch. I'm very nervous about it. And once again, I would like to thank Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Where would I be without you? So, thanks for listening, and until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?